All right, ladies, welcome. I think it goes without saying that we have our work cut out for us. We are going uh, to attempt, with the help of God, to study one of the classics. And that is, of course, Megillat Rut. Uh, we're going to uh, consult with the, con- the commentary of the Malbim, which is, again, one of the uh, major commentaries on Tanakh, but especially he has a brilliant way of opening up Megillat Rut. I think the timing of this uh, session is appropriate because this is the Megillah of Shavuot. So uh, we should have enough time to study the four chapters. And by the time Shavuot rolls around in about, uh, I guess, four or five weeks, we'll be able to read the Megillah with a little deeper understanding. Uh, just so you know the, uh, the background of the story without getting into the text for a minute, just so you know where we're, uh, where we're headed. This story takes place... Uh, at a time where there used to be judges in Israel. The judges were called the Shoftim. That was after Yehoshua. Yehoshua came in and conquered the land, and after his passing, the new form of uh, government in Bnei Israel was judges. The judges was like the king, but they called him a Shofet. Actually, this story takes place at the time of the Shofetim, and we learn about a famine that's going to hit the country of Israel. And the famine's going to be severe. And there was a very prestigious family, it was the family of Elimelech. Elimelech was the, uh, we'll call him the Parnasador. Parnasador means he was the philanthropist of the generation. He was a very wealthy man, he was a very notable man. He came from a prestigious family of Yehuda. He was married to a tzaddiket, nobody like her. Her name was Naomi. Naomi, sometimes when you name a child, you get the right name. And they definitely got the right name because in Hebrew, the word Naomi comes from the word Naim, which means pleasant. And she definitely lived up to her name. And uh, they had a good marriage. They had children. They had actually two boys that we know about, Mahlon and Kilion. And everything was going good. Good wife, good life, good children. You know, until. There's always the until. And once the until happened, then everything started to become topsy-turvy. Now, Elimelech made a fatal decision. That's usually when the bad things start to happen, when you make bad decisions. And he made a fatal decision to abandon his people. And he left Israel, albeit he left temporarily at first, and he's going to move out of town And the main reason why he's going to do that is because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to fund the famine. You know, you can imagine it's a time where people are needy and they need money, prices are going up, inflation, we can appreciate it a little. And uh, who's the first stop that they're going to go to? They're going to bang down the doors of Elimelech, give me money. And Elimelech was not interested. So he uh, picked up with his wife and his children, and they moved out. <clears throat> I don't have to tell you the, uh, the dangers of moving out of the community. And we don't have to go to this story, which was thousands of years ago. <clears throat> we can go to current events that those members of our community that moved out, and I don't mean moved to deal or moved to the city, but you know, just moved to no man's land, <clears throat> so they didn't do too well because the attraction to assimilation is very great. And when you're living in a community, that attraction is neutralized by strong family values, by synagogues, by religious life. So there's a counterbalance against assimilation. Once you go out of uh, the community, like it says in the Haggadah Shul Pesach, Kafar ba'ikar. Once you leave the klal, the next step is kafar ba'ikar. You become a denier of God. In this case, we mean that you don't have that magnetism of the community to hold you in. 
and then you become a, a victim of the street. And before you know it, there's assimilation, and there goes the family. And that's unfortunately can happen even to the most religious family like Elimelech and Naomi. They were religious people. But because they decided to move out um, to Moab nation, Moab area, real Goyim, uh, we're going to read about the unfortunate, tragic events that their children did the unimaginable. They intermarried. That's enough introduction. I don't want to tell you the whole story in my introduction. I think we should, you know, consult the text. <clears throat> but now at least you know uh, where we're headed. So let's start. Vayibimeh. Stop right there. I don't want to go too fast, but we, have, we read two words. This is, already we have to make a comment. The Gemara says a rule that anytime you see the words Vahibimeh, you know there's trouble. That's like a, a code. Uh, and one of the examples that they bring is Vahibimeh, Shefota Shofetim, Vahira Abaretz. So you see right away there was trouble. There's a famine in the land. And we knew something bad was going to happen because we knew it says Vahibimeh. It says uh, in the Pasuk, uh, we learned that uh, a few months ago and bingo, you got Haman so bad things happen when you have a that's written in the Torah there was a guy called Amrafel it was in his time bingo World War I broke out between Abraham and the five kings so <clears throat> we know from context that uh, is something uh, especially is something uh, troublesome. Now I want to tell you why it's so. What I'm telling you now comes from Rabbi Shlomo Elkabetz. Shlomo Elkabetz was the author of the Lechadodi. That's what he's famous for, the song that every Jewish community ushers in Friday night. But he also wrote a book on Megillat Esther called Manot HaLevi. He was a Levi and he wrote it, Manot HaLevi. Um, <clears throat> and in that book he writes the following. If you know anything about grammar, I learned this, uh, I had good teachers that were very sticklers on grammar, so they taught it to us. If you have the word yehi, yehi is future. Yehi, let it be. That's a future tense. That's Lashon Atid, yehi. Now when you put a vav in front of the word yehi, vayhi becomes now, and it was, past tense. That's called the vav hahipuch. The vav that's able to change tenses. The vav in the front of the word yehi changes tenses from future, yehi, to vayhi, and it was. Vavahipuch. <clears throat> so the word vayhi basically says that if somebody wants to take um, their future, which doesn't look so good, and put it behind them, that means they're having a bad time. Whenever you want to put your life behind you, you cannot be enjoying such a good life in the present. So therefore, vayhi is an indication that you took yehi, you took the future, and you vayhi. You took the future and put it in the past. So the word vayhi indicates that uh, things are not so rosy. Let's put it that way. All right, vayhi Now, at this rate, we're going to finish Megillat Rut in about 100 years because... We have to analyze every single word. You know, I could tell you the story in an audio book, and I could do it in 15 minutes, but then you won't benefit from all the, the nuances that we have to say. So I'd rather do a quality over quantity. And, you know, there's always next year, as they say. Shefota Shofetim. It was the time of the judges, the judgment of the judges. I should have said, I mean, We know what judges do. Judges judge. You don't have to tell me it was the time when the judges were judging. <laughs> we know that uh, the profession of a judge is to judge, so you don't have to tell me that. So the Gemara says that it was a time where there was not too much leadership in B'nai Israel, and there wasn't really uh, anybody to look up to so much. The judges themselves were being judged by the people. The people were judging the judges. Which means to say there wasn't good leadership and the people didn't have too much respect for the leaders at the time. And the Gemara gives an example. If a judge would tell the plaintiff, uh, an example, the Gemara says, take a splinter from in between your teeth. 
That's a way of saying a small crime he committed. You know, take a splinter from in between your teeth. Remove the wood in between your teeth. So the plaintiff would tell the judge, you're telling me to remove a splinter? How about the log that's lodged between your head? Which means you're more guilty than I am. You're telling me, Tol Kisam, how about Tol Kiram, Tol Koram, Ben Enecha? Which means the judges were not in the position to judge. And when you have that, there's no leadership, then there's already Elta Skelta, like it says in the Navi, Ish Hayashar Everybody does what they want. There's no, um, there's no checks and balances. There's no. Nobody telling you it's Asur, nobody that has the right to tell you that's Asur, because what time you're talking? You're talking? Who are you to tell me it's forbidden? You're a bigger criminal than I am. And therefore, keep your mouth shut. Therefore, that, that's what's going on over there. So, therefore, Elimelech can leave Israel without anybody telling him anything. If there would have been a proper leader, somebody would have, would have told Elimelech, where do you think you're going? You're the richest man in the neighborhood. The people need you, and they would have, uh, they would have thrown him in jail, you know, to scare him. But since it was the times of Shefot Shofetim, so there really wasn't any, uh, you know, uh, 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 recourse against Elimelech. He was able to get away with what he did. That doesn't need too much interpretation. There was a, a famine in the land. And that's what he was worried about. He was worried about famine, rich man. They're going to clean him out. And, and we know this, by the way. Not only are they going to clean him out, it's not, he wasn't only worried about that they're going to knock on his door and say, you know, it's a Dakar. What he thought was going to happen is what happened in New York after the pandemic. You know, when people are out of work for a long time, they don't have food, they don't have panasa, so they start rioting and they start uh, taking rocks and throwing it into the windows and stealing the goods. And people get crazy. And he was worried about, uh, you know, they're going to come after him and they're just going to pillage everything he has. So the Pasuk says, Vayelech Ish. And when you see the word Ish, that means he was a rich man. Ish means he was a, a nobleman. He went from Bethlehem Yehuda. That's the, that's the name of the town, Bethlehem. We still have it around today. It's where Mother Rachel is buried. Nacheli Men was buried in Bethlehem. It's in the territory of Yehuda. It's called Bethlehem, in the territory of Yehuda. I want you to know that Bethlehem originally was called Ephrat. That was the original name, and then it became called Bethlehem. Uh, like it says in the Torah, Hashem Ephrat, He Bethlehem. Like it says in the Torah, I buried my wife, this is Yaakov talking in Ephrat, which subsequently became Bethlehem. Now, Rav Hida, I know we're learning the Malbim, but I'm still allowed to quote other rabbis to make this more, you know, uh, worth your while. The Malbim says that the name Bethlehem Yehuda was actually a rebuke to Elimelech. Because ultimately, where does bread come from? Where does Parnassah come from? From God. And if you have Betahon, you have faith in God, just like God made you rich. So God will keep you rich and you don't have to worry. By giving money to the poor, you're not going to lose uh, your wealth. You're going to only enhance it. Panasa comes from God. So therefore, if you take the word Yehuda, which is a great name, by the way, Yehuda is one of the greatest names because it's one of the few names that we have that has all the names of Hashem in it. There's a Yud in it, there's a He in it, there's a Vav in it, and there's a He in it. You know, you gotta, and you have a Dalit, which represents the four letters. So you have Yehuda as a fantastic name. And therefore, Rav Hidaz says, Bet Lechem. You know where Lechem comes from? You know where bread comes from? Yehuda, from Yudke Vavke. And that's the indictment against Elimelech. You're leaving Bet Lechem Yehuda, not only the location, but you're leaving the mindset of Bet Lechem Yehuda. That Panasah comes from Hashem. What did you panic for? What did you leave? Now, to his credit, Lagur Beste Moav. Now, what is the word? Lagur mean to live. Gar. Now there's a, you know, we know this from Haggadah Shil Pesach. We just finished Pesach. Welcome back. So in the Haggadah Shil Pesach, we said that when the Jews went down to Egypt, it says, Lagur ba'ares banu. They told Paro, we came, Lagur. And what did it say in Haggadah? Melamed, shelo yardu lehishtakeya, 
they didn't go down to permanently live. El Lagur. So Lagur means temporary residence. Which means when they went on their passport, it says you have three months. That's it. They went temporary passport. They didn't file for an extension on their visa. They had no intention to setting up shop in Moab. It was Lagur. They wait for the famine to pass, and then they'll come back. Furthermore, where did they move to? Sde Moab. That's the outskirts. They didn't move to, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. or to New York City. They moved, you know, uh, to the outskirts of Moab. They didn't move to the, uh, the, to, 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 to the city, to the rural areas with all the people. They lived on the outside because their intention was really not to be there, you know, for too long. So they went to Sde Moab. Again, to his credit. I mean, uh, but, again, it was a mistake because he shouldn't have left at all. Sde Moab. And uh, the Pasuk says, Who moved? Who ve'ishto? Ushne banav. Him and his wife and his two sons. And the, uh, the Pasuk is coming to tell us over here that he was the motivating force to move. His wife had no choice. <clears throat> Husband says, We're moving. So she has to move. That's uh, one of the roles of the wife, to listen to the husband, which is a class in itself. But who v'ishto? So he said, we're moving. And all of a sudden, Naomi says, you know, I'd rather not, but, you know, kapara, we got to move, we got to move. He pays the bills. So therefore, who v'ishto? And the kids have no say anyway. I mean, today, kids, you know, they have all the say. But in those days, kids were kids. They listened to their parents. So they said, you know, we're moving with you. So uh, that's what happened. Who v'ishto? Now, the pasuk then says, so that's Pasuk Aleph. It's going to take us about 20 minutes. So, uh, good luck. Baruch Atah Adonai. B'Shem Ha'ish Elimelech. So he was known. B'Shem Ishto Naomi. His wife was named was Naomi. They were known. Uh, and because they were known, that's why he left. You know, you have some rich people, but nobody knows they're rich. So therefore, they could, they could afford to stay. But Veshem Ha'ish Elimelech, he had a name. Everybody knows Elimelech, the wealthy guy, his wife, rich lady, and the kids. So therefore, he knew he could not remain incognito in uh, Israel. So that's why the Pasuk is telling us. Veshem Shne Banav, his two sons were Mahalon Vekilion Efratim. Okay, let's discuss this word, Efratim. Different ways of interpreting it. Some say the word Ifratim is another way of saying Hashuvim. Hashuvim means they were noble, noble people. And also, if you came from the tribe of Yehuda, they nicknamed people from the tribe of Yehuda as Ifratim. Why? Because one of the most uh, noble families of Yehuda was the family of Kalev ben Yefuneh. Kalev, one of the spies. And Kalev was married to a very prestigious woman called Ifrat. And therefore, if you came from Caleb's family, he's, oh, Ephratim, that's from, you know, she's from the Queen Elizabeth lab deal, so she's from the blue blood. So therefore, they called this family, like we would say, you know, Halabim, Ephratim. Ephratim, they have that status of, uh, you know, the good, uh, the good lineage that we enjoy. Okay. So the Pasuk says, Vayavo'u sedemo'av vayiyusham. That's exactly what happens. You know, nobody intends to live there permanently, but then what ends up happening? You get comfortable. So it says, Vayavo'u, it says they went temporarily to Stemwa, but you know what happened? They ended up digging in. Vayyusham is already a change in, in plans. So now already they started to get comfortable. Now they set up their businesses and they set up their homes. Instead of building a, a summer home, they said, you know, we're going to be here for a while. They build a, you know, a 12-month home. They start to get, you know, they have to extend their visas. <clears throat> now the tragedy begins. And again, it's unfortunate, but this is uh, self-inflicted. You shouldn't have left. I once heard from uh, a great rabbi, our fool may live and be well. He once was talking uh, over lunch, and I'll tell you, we were having lunch together, and uh, he said, uh, everybody has Gehinam in their life. I haven't met a person that doesn't have Gehinam. He says, but what bothers me is the people that create their own Gehinam. 
He says, you know, what do you got to create your Gehinam for? Gehinam will find you, unfortunately, without having to look for it. But a lot of people create their own Gehinam, and then we got to get them out of it. Where should they create in the first place? You should have been, uh, you know, aware of it, that what you're doing now is going to have a Gehinam repercussion. And that's what happened to Elimelech over here. You, you, you can't blame Elimelech, uh, or you can't blame anybody for the results except Elimelech. What did you leave for? You should have stayed. But there was nobody to tell him to stay because we, we, the judges are being judged. So there wasn't even anybody that could tell Elimelech, hey, you have no right to leave. He can do whatever he wants. The judges are judging the judges. The people are judging the judges. So I'm sorry to tell you, Pasu Gimal has a tragic uh, turn. Vayamot Elimelech ish Naomi. Elimelech dies. <clears throat> now the question over here is, normally when God punishes, the punishments happen in increment. It doesn't start with death. That's the end. There's nothing after that. Usually it starts with a person loses his money. And then if he doesn't get the message, it moves on to more you know, health and then to death. Here it sounds like that they went straight Right to death. What happened to the increments? We learned in Parashat Mitzorah, for example, that when God punishes in leprosy, it starts on the garment, and then if the person doesn't repent, actually it starts on the walls, forgive me, it starts on the walls, and then if he doesn't repent, that uh, wall sarat goes on his garment, and if he doesn't repent, it goes on his body. So this increments, and here, bing! So the Gemara learns that actually he lost his money first. So there was a warning. The Malbim was an incredible piece now. The Malbim says, hold it. The Gemara cannot just make uh, conjecture, theory, unless it has a, uh, a proof from the text. That means, you should know this as a rule. Anytime Hazal made statements, it's because they saw something in the text. The text will always give a hint the Hazal, the, oh, there's something more than meets the eye. Now, where do you see in these words, Vayamot Elimelech Ish Naomi? Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And the Gemara says, Ah, you see? He lost his money first. Says the Babim something so stunning. <clears throat> he says, When a rich man dies, and a man that has a lot of uh, assets dies, what do the people say? The rich man, Elimelech, died. The guy who was a philanthropist. The tycoon is no longer. When Elimelech died, what did they say who died? Exactly. The husband of Naomi. Meaning that's all he had left. That's all he had left was Naomi. They didn't eulogize him and say, oh, the mega millionaire guy, the zillionaire, the rich man. By the time he died, he lost that reputation of being a rich man. He was a, he was a regular, you know, uh, a poor guy <clears throat> that had a nice wife. Just a question. How long after they moved did, this, did he die? Within, uh, within, within 10 years, within a short amount of time. Not long. <clears throat> so now, Vayamot Elimelech Ish Naomi, Vatisha'ed he, Ushne Baneha. Now, Vatishair, he doesn't, right, that's the way I would have learned, right? And they stayed. It's more than they stayed. Vatishair means they became like leftovers. Uh, uh, they became remnants, remnants, she'er. Uh, they became remnants, means they, they were like leftovers. Now you have a, a widow with, a, with a two kids, without a husband. They became like she'erim, uh, leftovers of a, it became as, as insignificant as they were before, and it became very insignificant. So, Metishaed, he, the Gemara says, he became like Shiurim and Meaning, the, the main person of the family was taken away, so she becomes like, uh, in the sense, uh, leftover. Now, listen, ladies, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't write the book. The book was written by Shimon Lenavi, by the way. I didn't tell you that, but. The book was written by a prophet. So these Pesukim are, you know, this is not some author that's writing the chronicles of, uh, of life. It's, uh, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson. This is the idea. It's written by Shemuel Navi, and it's, it's a prophetic book. You have to know that. 
ויישאו להם נשים מואביות. אוי אוי אוי. You know, עבירה גוררת עבירה, one sin leads to another. You know, sins happen in, in bunches. And now all of a sudden there's no father, so there goes the chinuch of the family, and there's no uh, money, and they're poor, and you're living in Moab, so they probably went to college, you know, that's, that's where it starts. Intermarriage usually starts on a college campus somewhere. So they went to, you know, Moab University, wherever it was, or, uh, you know, the community college of uh, Ste Moab, because they didn't have money, I guess, so they probably went to a community college. And uh, what ends up happening, they marry Nashim Mo'aviyot. Now there's a big question, did they convert or not? It's a big debate. Uh, the Malbim, again, subjects the text to the interpretation that said they did not convert. They married them straight out Goyot, and his proof is that normally when we talk about legal marriage, the Torah will always use the word Vayikah. Vayikah is Lashon Kiddushin. That's the word. They took. Here it says Vayisu, they married. And normally Vayisu is used when it's marrying outside. So he circles the word Vayisu, which is tips them off that that's a word used in marrying out. They were Nashim Mo'aviyot. Shem Ha'achat Orpa Veshem Ha'shenit Rut. Now one of them was called Orpa, and one of them was called Ruth. Uh, there's significance in the way the Torah lists these names over here. Mahlon was the older brother. Kilion was the younger guy. Who got married first? Now, normally the older brother gets married first, and then the younger brother, if you're following protocol. But again, since there was no protocol in those days, everybody did what they wanted to, the younger brother that was Kilion got married first, and he married Orpa. Now, Orpa is, you know, she's not good, as we're going to see later on. So not only did he marry a Goya, but he married, you know, uh, he went all out. He married a real Goya, Orpa. Now, Mahlon is guilty. Mahlon, the older brother, where are you to rebuke your younger brother? You're supposed to rebuke your older, younger brother. And you're supposed to say, what's the big idea over here? You're marrying a Goya and you brought this Orpa home over here. What are you doing over Bushat to you and you're embarrassing that? He didn't. So that makes Mahlon's crime, the older brother, much worse. Number one, you didn't say anything to your younger brother. And not only that, you double down. Because the person says he married Ruth. <clears throat> now he married, he married Ruth. So they're both married now to these goyot. That, this is very important to point out. Orpa is not going to convert ultimately, so we don't care what happens to her. The Zora Kadosh says the word Orpa is the same letters as He'afar, the dirt, which represents that she was not spiritual at all. She was lowly, like mundane, like the earth is... is, 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 is uh, is unholy and, uh, 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 you know, ordinary. Okay. Also, orpa comes from the word ha'orif. Ha'orif means stiff-necked. She was stubborn, you know. She didn't uh, have the ability to, to change in that sense, to become uh, Jewish. Ruth, on the other hand, will convert. Now, the odd thing over here is she keeps her non-Jewish name. She's called Ruth. When she was a Goyan, she's going to be called Ruth when she converts. Usually, the first thing they do at conversion is they change the name. And she comes in as, uh, I don't know what her name is, uh, Christina. And, uh, and they say, okay, your new name is Sarah. And they give her a Hebrew name. Or the guy comes in as, uh, you know, what is what, uh, Jesus. And they give him a new name. They tell him your new name is Abraham. So, and here she comes into the conversion, Ruth. And they say, oh, that's a good name, keep it. Keep it. That's what she was named when she was uh, Moabiyah. Why didn't they change her name? So the Benish Chai says, because it's a great name for a convert, by the way. You know, if, the name, if the name is a good name, then you, you keep it. All the goyim, before they convert, if they do, are obligated in seven mitzvot. The seven mitzvot, the Noahide laws. So everybody has to keep seven. When you convert, you have to now keep an additional 606 mitzvot, besides the seven, which equals 613. 
the numerical value of the word root, resh, vav, tap, is 606. So it's a perfect name for a convert because she's accepting upon herself the additional 606 mitzvot besides the seven that she has. So they said, you know what? We're not changing the name root. Uh, we'll keep it because it has, uh, it has a significant interest. In, 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 that's why, by the way, another famous convert that didn't change his name when he converted. Anybody know his name? Yitro. Because Yitro also has the same letters of root in his name. He just got an extra yud, which is that connected uh, either Hashem or he came after the Ten Commandments. However, you're going to learn that, but it has the same root configuration and therefore, therefore it's okay. <clears throat> It's interesting. Uh, two, two famous converts, Yitro and Ruth, and they both have that root in their, uh, in their, in their name. Anyway, Vayeshvusham ke'eser shanim. So the pasuk comes along over here. Um, and it gets worse. It gets worse. The, the fact that the younger brother married Orpah first makes Mahlon sin that much more because if, listen to what Babim says, if Kilion would have married Ruth first, and Ruth was a decent lady, so then you could rationalize the second marriage and say, okay, listen, he got a good Goya, so you know, maybe, maybe I'll find a good one. But you saw that your brother married a bad one. I mean, they're not good until they convert, obviously, but our power was terrible. And you still went and got married after you saw your brother what he did. He took your brother more power first. And you still went, so it compounds the uh, it compounds the sin. And that's it. Vayeshvu now. Now Vayeshvu means they they settled and they were there for ten years. And uh, so you see, God's justice is slow. They didn't die the next day. They were there for ten years. So they die. Who dies first? The older brother, the one that got married second. Why does he die first? Again, you're the older brother. Why didn't you rebuke your younger brother and tell him not to do it? Instead, you learned from the avon of your younger brother who married Orpa, who was a terrible lay, and you went and still didn't care. So therefore, Mahlon, uh, he dies first. Now, you know that, ladies, I'll answer your question in a minute, that they must have lost their money first. If they had any money left. Where do you see in the text that they lost their money? Who going to tell me? Vayamutu, it doesn't say Vayamutu Shenehem. It says Vayamutu Gam Shenehem. Whenever you see the word Gam in the Pasuk, it comes to include something. What is it including? First, vayamutu gam. First, they lost their money, and a poor man is like a dead man. And then, shenehem, then they actually died themselves. So the rabbis, again, did not just make up that they lost their money. They saw it in the extra word, gam shenehem. That there was, a, there was two types of deaths that took place over here. It was a death of losing the asset, and then there was a death of themselves. You have a question? Oh, like I said, for, by the way, first of all, when he didn't rebuke his older brother, so he's guilty now of two crimes. He's guilty of his brother's sin, and he's guilty of his own. I mean, he didn't marry a tzaddiket, keep in mind. She was a goya. She just, she just was better. Do we know when she converted? Right now. Like, right now. Wait, stay tuned. Yeah, yeah, stay tuned. Coming up. So the Pasuk says, but this is so sad. I mean, it's a, listen, it's a sad story. You can't, can't change it. Although the end is going to be, everybody's going to live happily ever after. But until we get to that point, it just gets sadder and sadder, the story. So, you know, that's what it is. Yes? Just a quick question. Um, Ruth and Orpah were from royalty, correct? Correct. They were the daughters of Eglon, Melech, Moab, according to tradition. So why would they marry? Because they were from royalty too. They, listen, uh, uh, they were royal family, Ephratim. They still carried themselves like nobility. Everybody knew this is the family of, uh, you know, this is Jewish royalty. The Goim loved Jewish royalty. They loved to marry Jews. This is, you know, so again, so they didn't have so much money anymore, but, you know, they'll make it back. But they had, this is blue blood marrying blue blood. It's not the stamp. They didn't marry lowlifes. Ephratim they were. So, so. 
And that's where you see that they ended up doing. They started to socialize. That Obviously, they were socializing in that echelon over there. You, know, you, you don't meet uh, uh, Ruth and Orpa in the, the bar, in the pub, you know, with the, in the bowling alley. They're not in the bowling alley, these people. These, uh, you know, they met him in uh, some uh, cocktail party somewhere in the, in the palace in Moab, because that, that's what they, with the tuxedo. Uh, they were, or they met him on a college campus at Yale. The point is, they met him in a prestigious place because they themselves had uh, the same, you know, uh, not values, of course, but again, living in Moab over the course of time, they degraded into that. But why didn't you convert before? Who asked that? Nobody asked that to convert. To no, nobody, yeah, nobody asked that. Yeah, Mahlon didn't ask for conversion. Right. <laughs> they, were, they were ready, they foregone. They didn't have children, no. They were sisters, according to Hazar, yes. Anyway, but the Sha'id Ha'isha, so now who's left? What a story. Now you have this Naomi Hazita. She's bereft from her two children, Ume'ishan from her husband. So she's now left with two daughters-in-law that are Goyot. And doesn't have a penny to her name. And here she is. So now the Torah comes along and says... She wants to leave, that's it. So both her, Naomi, and her daughters-in-law, they get up. One thing they agreed on. We got to get out of here. The only difference was that there was a difference in thought between Naomi and her daughters-in-law, why they have to get out of here. Initially, the daughters-in-law said, we got to get out of here because it's an unlucky place. I mean, obviously we're not doing so good in this place. So a lot of bad karma, a lot of energy. You know, let's try uh, the next town over. They were not initially intending to go to Eretz Israel. Their just intention was, let's get out of Stemoab. But Naomi, however, her intention was not only to leave, but it was more important, she was going back. So she was set already. So here's what we're going to have now. They're all leaving, but at the initial state, they were leaving for different reasons. Uh, Ruth and Orpah are leaving to leave. Not important where they go, just to leave. And uh, Naomi, it's more important that she wants to get to the destination of Eretz Israel. And why? She heard already. She heard, singular. She heard. Naomi heard. That God remembered his people to give them bread. So he heard, she heard that the famine was over. How did she hear? She heard from the peddlers that came uh, to the town. And they, you know, they didn't have WhatsApp or uh, you know, uh, Fox News those days. So you had to hear it from the old-fashioned way. You heard it from live people. So the peddlers came and they said, Oh, uh, the uh, economy is getting better in Israel. So already in Stemoav she said, I'm going back. I'm going back home. Fine. Now, <clears throat> there's a significant uh, word in this passage, that God remembered his people to give them, to give them bread. I'd like to explain this because there's a, there's a hadush in this. We pray in the Amidah every day that God is going to bring the Mashiach. It says, God is going to bring the Goel to the children of the Avot. God remembers the Hasadim of the Avot, and in the merit of the Avot, He'll bring us the redemption. So we don't think that we're worthy of bringing the redemption on our own right, but we invoke Zichut Avot, so we say, Vezocher haste avot, umebi goel, in the zechut of haste avot. But then it says, Lema'an shemo. What does Lema'an shemo say? For his name. For his sake. Which implies that not because we're worthy. So the Mepharshim say, either we can have Mashiach in the merit of the avot, but if we have exhausted the merit of the avot already, which according to the majority opinions, we have exhausted the merit of the Avot already. How many times can you call in a chip? 
And all the zechut avot, zechut avot, zechut avot, that bank account is, is empty. So the pasuk says, umevigo as long as zechut avot was still flush, so then God will bring the Mashiach in the zechut of the avot. However, today he's bringing it lema'an shemo. He's only bringing it for his sake. But nonetheless, be'ahava. Even though we don't deserve it, he's bringing it out of love. Now don't think, oh, I'm bringing it because I, I don't want my name to be uh, 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 you know, uh, to be uh, desecrated by the goyim. So therefore, uh, and therefore, um, I'm not happy. He's still bringing it out of love, even though it's not. We didn't earn it yet. So whenever you see Hashem's name, that God does something for His name, it means He's doing it for His sake, not for our sake. So the Malbim learns in this pasuk over here, ki fakat Hashem et amo. God, God remembered the people, not because the people deserve to be remembered, but because God was merciful on them. It's not that the people really made such a big teshuvah, but God had mercy, because ultimately he's the father, and he gave us a, uh, you know, he broke the famine. But it wasn't because we were necessarily, you know, tzaddikim that earned this, uh, this merit. So the, the times really didn't change too much. It's just God just said, okay, you know, let's uh, bring him the panasah. Yes. So it's, a, that's the same thing. Yeah, it, it, it's, in, in there it's a drop different because there God said, I'm not taking you out until you do something. So he told him to do Dam Pesach and Dam Milah. That's why the Pasuk says, Pakod Yifkod Elohim. Elohim is judgment. Now, judgment has to be, you have to, you have to be worthy. Because a judge looks at the facts and says, Are you worthy or not? So therefore they were worthy because they did the two mitzvot. Here it doesn't say judge, it's Yudke Vavke. Yudke Vavke is mercy. You don't deserve it. But I'm going to do it because... But isn't it a Hari Kedeshit? So isn't it again that we're going to have to be worthy of it? That's what we're doing here. We're trying to earn it. No, but not from Zichut Avot, but that's the issue. (laughs) It's not going to have to... We can't rely on Zichut. We're going to have to generate it, you know, organically by ourselves. So she picks up and goes. She's now going to leave the place. Now, very important. Listen to this nuance. She got up to leave. Which means to leave, they were all in agreement. At the time of Vatetse, there was no argument that we got to get out of here. But not until they got on the road did Ruth and Orpah decide to go with Naomi back to Israel. Naomi already decided from Moab that she's going home. When they left, at least they were all in agreement that we're going to leave. Although Naomi already had a mind to go, they were not on that head yet. But then it says, once they started to walk on the road, then then even Ruth and Naomi decided, we're going back with you. We're going to go to Eris Yehuda. We're going home to Israel with you. Now this is, I mean, to the credit of these two girls, I mean, they can go home back to their father's house. Uh, I'm sure they had satin sheets on their bed and they had, you know, all the amenities of life, whatever that means. And they can go live the life of uh, princesses. Vatomen Naomi leshte kaloteha. So Naomi turns to her daughter-in-law. Which means, initially she doesn't tell them anything. Because she thought that they're just escorting her. You know, they're going to escort her to the border. Okay, mom, I'll see you later. Good luck, have a good life, and make a U-turn. And now when they started, she started to understand that they're not escorting. That they're, they're, going, with they're going with her. So at that point, the pasuk says, "Vatomen Naomi lechna," which means you can go home now. You escorted me to the border, lechna. You can go home now, shovna, shovna. Return, and where does she tell them to return? Isha lebet ima. Go to your mother's house. That's a little impersonal, but 
you know, why does she have to tell them go to your mother's house? Go home. Go, go, go make a life. Why is she giving them uh, go to your mother's house? And, then, and, what if, and what if they want to go to the, what if they want to live in an apartment uh, in the city? Why does she have to tell them go to your mother's house? Who wants to go to their mother's house anymore? That's it. That's a way of saying the custom in the olden days was that if a girl who was married, the custom in the olden days, if a girl that was married had intentions to remarry, she would go back to her mother's house. That was a sign that she's available, meaning she's, she wants to go out again. She wants to go. Now, if she would go live alone, that was an indication to the market. You know, exactly. Leave me alone, I'm done. So Ruth, uh, uh, Naomi felt these girls were young. We don't know how young they were, but they were young. So she said, you don't have to go become uh, you know, bachelorettes living in some apartment somewhere. Go back to your mother's house. That's a way of saying... Start over. Get married. You're still young. You can make a life. Mm-hmm. She says, by the way, I bless you. God should give you a blessing and kindness. God should repay you for the kindness that you did to your deceased husbands and what you have done for me. The Malbim says, what was the kindness that was that was done. So we quote from the uh, from the Talmud that the custom was that when somebody dies, the husband has to pay for the funeral arrangements. When Mahlon and Kilion died, they picked up the, the tab for the funeral. Uh, they didn't put the pressure on Naomi because she didn't have the money. And they could have said, you know, let the government pick it up. I don't know what, but uh, it's not, not our problem. So the chesed that they did, that's, whenever you see chesed, it's usually chesed shel emet, meaning uh, the chesed that he did to the deceased. And she did a chesed to Naomi also because when they were married, they had prenuptials. Uh, we call that a ketubah. And the ketubah, although it wasn't a halachic ketubah, but there was an agreement that if uh, they should die, so Ruth and, and Orpah inherit from the estate. They get to collect. Uh, uh, they could have, you know, took that document and held it against Naomi. They forgave the ketubah. They said, you know, we don't want any money. In that. So they, they did a good thing. So, 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 so Naomi blesses her daughters-in-law. You know, God should repay you in kind for what you did to me and my children. You were good to my, my children. You paid for the funeral. You forgave the ketubah. But Yitena uh, Shem Lachem, God should give you as your heart's desires. Um Sena Minuha. Sena Minuha, you should find Minuha. That's a nice way of saying you should find, uh, like we would say, when somebody gets married, what do they say? He's settling down. He's settling down. Minuha, meaning you're settling down. You have the tranquility. Uh, that's a way of saying marriage. Isha bet Isha. What is that? Contentment. Contentment, exactly. Exactly. Uh, she kisses them. This was a kiss, the Gibra says, of departure. There's different type of kisses. I'm not going to go through all of them today. But the one that we're talking about now is a kiss of pereda, meaning farewell. Uh, and they, that was an emotional moment, you can imagine. And they start crying. And now the Pasuk says, uh, unbelievable, but Tomanala, they both say to Naomi, even Orpah, no, we're not leaving you, we're going home with you, we're coming back with you. Now, basically what they're saying at this point is, we want to convert. Now, it's very nice to convert, but... We have rules the way we accept converts. I forget about the edict and all that stuff. I'm talking about in the old days when they were not bound. They weren't Syrian. They could do whatever they want. The point is, you have to discourage them. When somebody comes home and says, I want to be Jewish, I'll say, oh, great. Come right now. We'll drop you in the mikveh, put a wig on your head, and put a dress on, and uh, you know, we'll send you to the Beit Yaakov. We say to them, what do you want to be Jewish for? You know what type of mess it is to be Jewish? You're ready to keep Shabbat now? 
Now on Shabbat, you could drive your car, you could go to the park, you could do whatever you want. Now you can become Jewish if you turn on, if you carry a few business in the street in the public domain, you're guilty of death. You're willing to do that? Oh, I don't know. You can, if you carry just a few business in the street on Ocean Park on Shabbat, you're punished by death? Yeah. I'm like, wow. I thought Jewish means you eat the gefilte fish. I don't know, you're going to die. You have to scare them. So Naomi now is going to follow the law of trying to say, it's not for you. Go back, go back home. Listen to the beautiful Malbim here. Basically, she's saying like this. Listen. It's not like I have any more children that you can marry. If I had another couple of kids, I said, okay, so, you know, I'll give them to you. But I don't have any more kids. But she says it in a flowery way. Let me explain to you. According to Hebrew language, a child is not called a ben until he's born. I'm not getting involved in Roe versus Wade today. I'm just talking about Hebrew language. You can deal with the Supreme Court on your own time. When it says banim, you're not called the ben until it emerges. So what is the baby called in the womb? Ubar. Got it? So you would never say banim b'me'ai. It's a, it's a uh, oxymoron. It, it, those two words don't go together. But that's what she says. Haodli banim b'me'ai. Do I have banim in me'ai? She should say haodli ubanim b'me'ai. Haodli banim. Mazit banim b'me'ai. Don't go together. So it's a flowery way of saying, "Am I hiding any children under my dress? Do you see any children over here? Do I have any banim over here? There's no banim. Haodli banim b'me'ai. Am I covering up any? What do you think? A child's gonna pop out of you know from under me? I'm not hiding any children. Meaning, I don't have any more kids. To marry you off. That they could be your husbands. She says a second time. Because you have to dissuade them. Go back. Oh, now she gives another reason. She says, uh, I'm too old to be with a man anyway. So it's not like I can even have more children. I'll explain. And even if I say there's hope, and even if tonight I would be with a man, and I would have children, are you going to wait for them? Until they grow up? Simply what she's saying is, even if I go with a man tonight, even if I get pregnant, and even uh, it's going to take uh, 10 years for them to grow up to be marriageable age. Why are you going to wait? Why is she so detailed, though? Why does she have to explain like, that whole process? Like, they know oh, that. Oh, 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 so I'm going to explain to you that. It's very good. The, the, the process. You learn a lot from this Pesukim over here. The Gemara says, the Gemara says, that a lady that's not married for 10 years, after 10 years, the body shuts down in fertility. A lady that was not with a man for 10 years, whatever, she's a widow, whatever it is, after 10 years, even if she gets married, she will not be able to have children. Don't ask me if Harvard agrees with this or not. I'm coming to tell you what the Hakamim say. Harvard usually is about 4,000 years behind the truths of the Torah. So they're always lagging the Torah. So they'll come to this truth, you know, eventually. But I'm giving it to you today. But the Gemara asks the question. What do you mean? Gemara Yivamot. The daughter of Rav Hezda was not married for 10 years. That she had children after. So the Gemara says, oh, she was different. Because it was still on her mind to get married. So the Gibara says, as long as the girl anticipates to get married, uh, the fertility doesn't close down. 
and the daughter of Rav Hazda still was, uh, or the wife of Rav Hazda was still, you know, intending to get married, so therefore 10 years didn't affect her. So this is what the root, this is what Naomi is now telling her daughters in law. Shobda Benotai, Ki Zakanti Miyot Leish. First of all, Zakanti, I'm an old lady anyway. So who's having children? Uh, you know, I'm an old lady. I'm done. Now, Ki Amarti Yeshli Tikva. And even if my mind was that there's still hope. That after Elimelech died, I never took my mind off, and therefore I'm still fertile. Here we learn the Bazook. Ki Amarti, even if I said Yeshli Tikva, that she's saying, even if my mind was still to get married, therefore I'm not infertile. My, I kept the clock, the biological clock ticking. Now, it happened to be the day that this happened was the 10th year anniversary. So that night would have been the 10 years. So that's why she says, Specifically tonight. Tonight's the expiration date. That's when the library book is due. Tonight it's over. So she says, and even if, which means, if I passed the 10 years hypothetically, but I still was anticipating, and anyway, it doesn't matter because tonight is the night, and even if I was with a man tonight where I'm still okay, a lot of risks here. First of all, I have to find a man, and tonight's the final night. And by the way, I have to get pregnant. I'm automatically going to get pregnant, and it has to be a boy. I mean, uh, you know, Las Vegas doesn't give good odds that all those things are going to happen. That's called a, that's not a good bet, as you know. And let's say it happens. Yes, Rebbe. She was Jewish. So what? She's Rebbe. Naomi was a tzaddikah. She knew. She knew it. She was tzaddikah. She knows. Like I know, she knew. She knew it. They had gibbara in those days. They had Talmud. They had uh, Torah. She, she was religious. She was a tichel, everything. She was a religious lady. The woman has such an influence on her household. So why did she influence her kids? It's Naomi against the uh, culture of Moab. You can't, you can't win that one. Even to leave, to begin with. We can tell her husband, no. That's what you said. She was a good wife. Like uh, she tried. I'm sure, I'm sure she didn't say, okay, I'll pack the bags. I'm sure she delayed it and said, you know, tomorrow. And then to, 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 so we're leaving, we're leaving. So she got stuck. She followed her husband. They don't blame Naomi for any of this. Then you tell me, well, why didn't she rebuke her kids? I'm sure she did. But you have, <laughs> by the way, don't, don't forget about Naomi. Look at today. You have New York City, America, and the religious parents that are trying to influence their kids, and they're up against Twitter and Facebook and some mechmem, social media, and all the other stuff. And you have a religious lady with a wig on her and a skirt telling her, please, go read Pinnikshita. Go, go take halal. What are you talking about? Take halal? What are you out of your mind? What are you talking about? I'm going to the ball game. I'm going to have a good time. You can't compete against the culture. And understand what's going on? Anyway, meaning, are you, are you anticipating this? Saberna means anticipate. You think this is going to happen? Is it, is it, is it, is it um, plausible that this is going to happen? I'm going to find a man tonight, get married, get pregnant. You're going to wait till they grow up. You're going to remain agunot until then. That means you're going to remain uh, old maids, uh, they call it. Liberty, Yotish, without being a, without being with a husband. Al benotai. Al benotai, the Rabbim says, al means like, whoa, whoa to this situation that you would have to do such a thing. Al benotai, it's like, uh, you know, a, 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 al benotai. This is terrible. Ki marli od mikem. He says, listen, I became bitter. Ki The hand of God has come out of me. God has taken away everything from me. He's taken away my husband. He's taken away my children. He's taken away my money. He, I have nothing left. I have nothing to offer you. I don't have money to offer you. I don't have any uh, 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 um, children to offer. I have nothing. Cry again. Vatishak orpala and here is the fork in the road that Rav Chaim Brim always told us about. Orpa kisses her mother-in-law. This is a kiss of departure again. 
Verut Tabka Ba and Rut clings to her mother-in-law. Talk about pivotal choices that people make in life. This is over here, one of those forks in the road. And at the time that they made this decision, you don't really see. It's like you're traveling and you can make a right and make a left. At the time that the cars veered to the right and left, it doesn't look like such a difference what they did. He went one inch this way, he went it that way. At, at the time of departure, it doesn't seem so significant. But you just have now put yourself on a road. This road leads to New York. This road leads to California. Uh, therefore, as the roads depart, you start realizing that this was a big... And then it, the, the decision is not at California. The decision was at the... When Ruth decided to stay, that was the decision to become the grandmother of Mashiach right there. Now, she didn't know that. You don't know. You never know what, what you, what's going to happen. But at that pivotal decision will change her world history. She becomes the great, great the grandmother of Shilomar Melech and will sit on the throne next to Shilomar Melech. She becomes uh, one of the most prestigious ladies in Jewish history. And Orpah becomes the grandmother of Goliath, of Goliath, the, the behemoth, the, the, the animal. And, and the, both their grandchildren would meet again on the battlefield. And Ruth's grandchild would be... So, Orpa is a nothing. Orpa goes down as a... And all from what? From this. So therefore, you never, you never discount decisions that you make in life. Because you never know... It puts a lot of pressure on, on decisions, that's for sure. We don't make life decisions over a cup of coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, you know, uh, uh, with a cell phone in your hand. These are decisions that have to be made with Rabbanim and Sadiqim. And, uh, who knows? This decision over here changes their whole, uh, the whole item. Uh, that's why, again, deliberation. You know, everybody has to judge themselves and their lives. Because, and you always wonder, where was, this, where was, the, where was the turning point? Mm-hmm. What was the decision that... Um, and in my life, I know it, it was very clear. When I graduated Mag and David... Uh, 1982, I was accepted to Flatbush. They sent me a, a, a letter of acceptance for one. You're being the, with all the tzaddikim over there, with all the geonim and all the hachamim, and all my friends got pending. They got letters that pending. They're big shots over here. <laughs> well, well, think about it. And they were shaking because they got pending. And I'm walking around showing everybody. I got accepted the first time over there. I'm going to Flatbush. There's nothing to talk. And then all of a sudden, uh, some rabbi comes from Israel and opens up a new school, Shadet Torah, a startup school, who knows what, random. Bunch of randoms. Two of his nephews, Elliot and Raymond, had to go because their nephews are the rabbis, so that's also automatic. So that didn't mean anything. You got one guy from Russia, they, they got another guy they picked up from Ellis Island, from Syria, they brought him there. They go, this is the start of school. And I'm a regular mainstream Syrian guy, Mag and David, leave me alone, there's nothing to enter. And my father went to Ham Baruch Baruch said, no, this is good. Rabbi Heber is a sadiq. this is good, good for the... And I cannot say that I went happily, in the beginning at least, you know. Now here I'm stuck with all these randoms. And there's a guy went to Torah Tamima, another guy learned in Bukhara, another guy learned in Halab, and I'm here, the only guy could speak a word of English. And uh, pivotal change, that's a pivotal decision, by the way. I'm not saying, you know, I, God forbid, uh, I would want the flowers. I don't know, I could be living on a kibbutz now, planting tomatoes uh, with open toe sandals and, uh, you know, wrapped in a flag. I, I'm not saying it in, in a bad way. I'm just saying it could have been a different path. That's my point, different path. So you look at your life and you try to find out where was the, where was the fork in the road that, you know, because you took this way, you went that, that, that was definitely a, a pivotal decision. Everybody has those moments. You know, if I went this way, I could have went that way. And thank God, Hashem... Not me. I, I, if it was up to me, I would have gone the other way. It was my parents and the rabbi that question. Blame her? Uh, I don't know if anybody's blaming her. I mean, I don't know if anybody's. No, you can't blame her. No one's blaming her. Right. No, no one's blaming her. Uh, you can't blame somebody. They don't want to have such misidut nefesh and, you know, be so, sacrifice everything. No claims against her. But, what makes her bad? No, well, you'll see. Uh, on the way back, she, the Midrash says she, you know, that's it. She, she, you know, she didn't, uh, you know, she didn't behave like a modest. Uh, she went back to right away her old, old ways. But the point is, no, we're not, we're not blaming her for this decision. We're just saying... You know, you, you, there's consequences from decisions. Mm-hmm. Questions, uh, Esther? Well, what changed, um, like, what gave, like, who inspired Ruth? Like, 
Like, Naomi, there's no question about it. She so saw a mother-in-law. About her that, like, what did she see that she wanted to come? Like, uh, who knows what she saw? She saw, she saw right. the pleasantness of it. She right. saw she was a religious lady. She probably portrayed the religion in a nice way. Right. Uh, she was very kind to them. I mean, listen, they're goyot. Keep in mind, they go yot. She could have said, you know, you get out of here, go yot. She was proper. She had proper. Like I said, she was. Naomi is pleasant. I, no question about it. The inspiration of Ruth is Naomi. I said she was blessing them. You can tell from how she spoke. No, she was definitely a. The, yes. It, it, you have to give the assist to Ruth, to Naomi. She gets the assist on Ruth's. Uh, she gets two points for the assist. Ah, now you introduce the Kabbalistic explanation of these chapters over here, that they come along and say, um, listen, uh, God is behind the scenes over here, and uh, Elimelech is called Elimelech because the words mean Eli Melech. In me is the Melech Mashiach. And therefore, he is attracted to where that spark is, and the spark of Mashiach is in Moab. And therefore, the Kabbalah will tell you that, although at surface it looks like Elimelech is you know, doing what he wants to do, but actually God is behind the scenes bringing... And, and, and the Zohar HaKadosh says, but if Elimelech would have been more worthy, the spark would have came to him. That was the mistake. He knew that he was involved in finding a spark, but he didn't have to go to it. It would have came to him somehow. Ruth would have came on a, you know, uh, some uh, trip to Israel with the, uh, with the church, and then she would have been there, and then they would have found her up, and then everything would have been fine. But he didn't do it that way. Okay, ladies, I have to go. We'll stop over here. Wow. Okay.